And so our communion and our relationship went to another level. We had other friends that came to Christ at the same time. And things went deeper. And we couldn't get enough of church. We couldn't get enough of the body of Christ together. And Chris's unique gifts surround um, his gift of encouragement. If there's ever anybody that I would say, you know, as you look at the list of gifts in the Bible, as someone who would have the gift of encouragement or the gift of faith, it's Chris. And so he's been that for me. He got off the plane, and uh, I don't know if you know, my wife has been, Judy's been out of town. Um, Her mother was supposed to have open-heart surgery. That got postponed, but she was she was still out of town, and so I had Kid Fest um, back in my house. And so anyway, sort of at the tail end of this experience, Chris came off the plane, and we were able to sort of have babysitting there, and we went to lunch, and we were looking at, you know, a, a beautiful sort of landscape of Alaska out of Simon and Seifert's restaurant, you know the place. And we're just sitting there, and he is immediate. I mean, we haven't talked to each other sort of face-to-face in a year, but before that, years and years. But he's the relationship that's just automatic. We're just automatically into um, life and conversations about the Lord and about what God's doing in his life. He's been a pastor at a church that was planted three years ago. It was 30 people in Richmond, Virginia. Now it's 300 people, and it's a growing ministry. And he is an associate pastor there full-time, and his uh, sort of specialty is um, building community, building relationships, and networking people together in the body of Christ. And that's what he's going to talk about now to us. So let's sort of buckle up, and let's welcome him with an Anchorage Grace welcome. Thank you for coming. Thanks again, Bill. Awesome. Yeah, we survived a few days indoors with all the Crotz kids. Um, when I came up here in February, Jeff was so hospitable, took me out in an airplane no bigger than my car. Um, we flew over ice and dangerous things and chased caribou down a riverbed and got out, landed on the frozen whatever and shot guns and freaked out. And... Um, and uh, we didn't do any of that this trip, so all of our adventure was inside, and it was plenty. I, uh, um, I love Judy. God bless that woman. Um, I'm so glad to see her. <laughs> Jeff is too. Uh, um, so, yeah, that was great. He left me alone with them for three hours yesterday. I was, yeah, that's not smart. Um, I have five of my own, so five girls so if I lost any of them I could swap him one but you know or just you know exchange but you know didn't have to do that so I'm really grateful um anyways good seeing you guys again I was back here and earlier and so this is a, this is a treat uh I've enjoyed I'm enjoying my a lot you know this kind of like Alaska connection it's it's a it's really a privilege for me to be able to come in here and be in in church where Jeff has the privilege to lead and pastor and to be with you guys. Um, so I've got, I've got some things to say that I'm just going to talk about the idea of community. I, it's kind of like trying to cram an ocean in a thimble. Um, so I'm just going to drop some bombs on us and I'll let Jeff pick up the pieces over here the next couple of weeks. Um, but the, the reality is, and this is the way we talk in Richmond, um, that we don't come to church it's, it's not something you can do. Um, 
The church is not a service. The church is not a building. The church is not a set of meetings or um, music or worship or communion. The church is people. And so, so, we, so we call what we do gatherings. And the people of God that gather as the church, we gather together on Sunday mornings. And this is a, something that we gather here, but then we scatter throughout the week to live out the gospel, to apply the gospel to our hearts in community for the sake of the world. And, and so the church is something that we are 24-7. And so, you know, I try to be a stickler about our language um, there. When, when everyone kind of says, well, yeah, I went to church this morning, I kind of look at them a little funny. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry. We went to the gathering of the church in the building, you know. And, you know, I get kicked back from that. And I'm, I'm probably being a little self-righteous about it. But the, um, the reality is, is that language matters. And if, and you can tell if people really do think of church as, as these two hours that we spend together on a Sunday morning, sitting in chairs, not even really talking to each other. Um, the church is really much more than that. It's a 24-7 reality. And we get in trouble when we think about the church that way because we can also think about the gospel that way and decompartmentalize our lives to think that, okay, there's these different areas in my life. I have Christianity in this department. I have work in, over here. I have my family over here. I have my friends. I have my social life. I have sports over here. And we tend to like live in all these circles, but the reality is that the gospel affects all of it. We are the church wherever we go. We are the church in everything that we do. The gospel demands... And affects everything. Um, I certainly remember when church was not like that for me. When the body of Christ meant um, I wasn't. When Jeff, you know, Jeff was talking about we grew up in church and the the church building was a big deal because every single time you showed up there, they said that you need to keep coming to the building. That to be pleasing to God, to be honoring to God, to be a good Christian meant that you come, you came to a building during a certain time for a certain meeting to do a certain thing, and that throughout the week we were supposed to do certain Christian things in order to be a Christian, and to do that meant that you were pleasing to God and that you were right before Him. And, but the problem was I didn't want to do any of that. I did not want to be in the church service. I did not want to do all the things I was being asked to do. As a, as a teenager and, and, uh, and all of that, it was like... The whole idea of the church and the whole idea of meeting and gathering like this was simply a place where you could be told what to do, stuff you didn't want to do, and you would feel guilty all week for not doing what you did or didn't do. And so the, when we come, when we would come here, literally we just had more guilt piled on top of us because we did worse than the week before at what we were told to do the week before. And so it just became this thing where we were absolutely miserable in the church building. Um, And what we realized, and something Jeff and I realized, is that we couldn't really be honest about what was going on in our hearts. In fact, we didn't want any of it. We didn't want to do any of it. Because if we were to do that, then we would actually have to repent and actually deal with our hearts that were far from God and really wanted to simply serve ourselves and get the most out of life for our own self-satisfaction that we could. And so I actually found myself continuing to go to church meetings in order to stay away from God. I would come to church meetings, continue to fake like I enjoyed it and I was on board so that no one would ever ask me about my heart. Because if I stopped going to the church meetings, then people would go, oh, there's something wrong. They would ask me and I would have to tell them. And so coming to church was actually a means of covering up my sin. 
it matters how you talk about it. Because for that, church was not something that I was. Church was something that I did. But this all changed for me when I realized that all the things that God had required of me through His law, Jesus actually accomplished for me in His perfect life. And the death that I should have died because I lived the life that I did in my place. I'll never forget when the reality hit me that it wasn't God asking me to do stuff for Him as the good news. The good news is that God has done something for me. That all the things that I had wanted and all the things that I could not do, Jesus did. And that all the righteous requirements of law were fulfilled in His perfect life. And I did not have to be something because God had already made me His. I didn't have to try to be something that I wasn't because God, by His Spirit, through Jesus on the cross, has made me something that I was not. He made me something. And so it hit me that I was the church, not because of the good things I did or the bad things I avoided, but because simply because Jesus died for my sins and brought me to Himself by removing any barrier between me and God. That was when church became reality. That's when, that's when the gospel made sense. And that's when coming to be with the church was exciting. So it's kind of because I probably one of my passions for this is born out of passions for community and passion for life together is because I did so many church things and it wasn't real. I might have believed it was true, but it wasn't real to me. And so we really have to think about what does it mean to live life together? What does it mean to really be the church? Because if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we will miss the power of the gospel. We will miss the calling of God. We will miss the very thing that Jesus died for. He didn't die so people could sit in chairs and listen to stuff and do stuff. He died so that we might actually be the called out people from the world, for the world, living life together. So we see that there is a life that God has called us to that is together. This service, preaching like this, taking communion, all the things we do as a gathered service, this is the beginning of our understanding of the gospel and the way that we live it out. But it's only the beginning. If we don't then from this place scatter and then gather in places to process and apply the gospel and figure out how it's really making a difference in our hearts, we are very much like the folks that James wrote to and said they are hearers of the word and not just doers. That indictment scares me because I honestly have no idea, I have no idea apart from tight community if I'm really doing anything that I'm hearing. Unless I'm in a small group of people working out, trying to apply the gospel to my heart, confessing my sins and being honest where I'm falling short and being real about what I don't get, I don't know whether I'm actually doing any of the gospel. You just don't know. You could sit and listen to it all your life and until you're actually confronted with who you really are in the context of relationships and tight people, you have no idea. So the call for us to really understand and love God is a call to community. That's the motivation. Where does the idea of community start, though? It's not something that we're creating. It's not something that we make up. Um, I mean, we didn't, I mean, we tend to 
shape and all these things for cultural understanding. And, you know, we have a pulpit, we have chairs, we're looking at me, I'm looking at you. All of this is constructed by our hands. But, but the reality is, is that God is the one who has called us together in living life together. This is how we know we're doing the right thing. This is how we know we got it. Do we have honest, transparent relationships with one another that reflect that reflect the relationships that God has, first of all, in Himself. Christian religion is unique in the world because we talk about this mind-blowing concept of God is three persons in one being. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Think about this for a moment. For all of eternity, these persons, the Father enjoying the Son, and the Son enjoying the Spirit, and the Spirit enjoying the Father, enjoying the reflections and the manifestations of all their perfections for all of eternity, completely satisfied, completely enjoying the majesty and the beauty that all is God with one another, through one another, for all of eternity. We see that the idea of relationships and community begin with God himself. Deep relationships, therefore, are not just, a, are not just an idea, but they're actually the meaning of the universe. God himself is relationships, transparent, enjoying one another, honest, nothing hidden from each other. Relationships are something fantastic and good in themselves. They're not something that we just create. It's not something we just make up. We don't pursue life together in community in the church because we need friends. We do it because that is the reflection of God himself. We have to do that, otherwise we won't be motivated. And as soon as, as soon as things don't start, as soon as relationships and things stop meeting our needs, we'll give up. If we don't realize that, that to walk in relationship means to walk with God, and to walk with God means to walk in relationship, as soon as things break down, we'll give it up. If we don't realize that this is the life that God has planned for us and reflects really His Godness. Three things I want to say today that will help us get our heads around this. And, I want you to suspend your disbelief for a moment as I make kind of these, these absolute statements. But I'm going to get into it, and I, hopefully I'll convince you by the end. And if not, you can talk to Jeff, and he'll clean it all up when I'm done. Um, this is the outline. We cannot know God apart from community. We cannot change deeply apart from community. And we cannot make disciples apart from community. We cannot know God apart from community. We cannot change deeply. And we cannot make disciples on our own. We can only do that in community. So based on this triune nature of God that we've talked about, this three in one, it is no surprise that when God revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus, and Jesus came and lived among us as Emmanuel, God with us, it's no surprise that he gathered to himself 12 burly dudes. They weren't religious people. They were normal people. They were just like me and you. They weren't perfect. They had nothing together. They were just people. And God did not call them isolatingly and one-offs and two-offs and be like, hey, this is who I am. Go and make disciples. He taught them in community. He revealed himself to them in the context of life on life, listening, relating, working it out. These were guys that were called to live three years Together, They woke up together. They went to bed in the same 
That was not going to come out right. They slept in the same quarters. They were together all the time. They ate their meals together. There was probably very little that they did apart from each other. I think it's very interesting that God chose to reveal himself to them together. I think it's indicative of, of how we're supposed to know God. A couple of things. I, I just, when you look at, um, when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, and he was starting to make these statements that really upset the Jews. When he would say something about the exclusivity of him being God. He would say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. You will not know God apart from eating my flesh, drinking my blood. Besides that being just a weird analogy to them, it was his proclamation of his exclusivity of being God. And so the Jews were upset at that. They didn't like a man calling himself God. That didn't fit in their paradigm. So they grumbled against him. But also some of the disciples, some of those that had started to follow Jesus, not just the bad, awful Pharisees, but actually some of the Jews that had started to follow Jesus started to fall away at this time. Because, again, this exclusivity claim was challenging to them. And then Jesus turned to the twelve and said, Are you going to leave too? Are you going to leave too? And then Peter, once again, speaking for the twelve, says, Lord, to whom are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They, how could Peter speak to the fact that they have all believed unless they were learning to believe together. Peter was speaking and said, you know what, we have collectively, collectively, we, we have challenged each other, we have fought over this, we have argued over this, we have worked this stuff out, and we have come to believe that you are the Son of God. Faith, love, all of that was developed in a very tight community. I'm thinking of another example, James and John. You remember when their mom came to Jesus and said, hey, when you come in your kingdom, can, you, can, can my son sit on your right hand your left hand? Can one of them be the CEO, the other be the CFO? And when you come, can they be in charge? <laughs> and it says that the disciples, well, they, first of all, they made fun of James and John for his mom having to speak up for them. All right. Second, that was a joke. All right. I know they did that. I would be embarrassed. I would have made super fun of him, them, for having your mom step up in there. So, but it says that the disciples were moved with indignation. Moved. Like, not just a little upset. They were absolutely moved with indignation. One version says they were thoroughly disgusted with James and John and their mom. But look at this moment that Jesus walks into and teaches them. He says this, Guess what, guys? It's not going to be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, this, this opportunity of this, <laughs> this preposterous request, right? Jesus used this, uses this opportunity to reveal something about himself. See, the disciples would not have known this about Jesus unless this preposterous ask had been made and this fight had broken out among them. Okay? It was in the context of them living out life together, fighting, arguing, being disgusted with each other, that God reveals himself to them. 
didn't come to them in their quiet times, in their private times of reading the scrolls and whatever you did back then. They didn't come to them in their private moments of meditation. God revealed himself to them in the midst of their relationships and their fights. That's what I mean when we cannot know God apart from each other. If we're not together, if we're not working things out, if we're not fighting, sinning against each other, repenting of our sin, confessing our sin to one another, being made right because of the grace of God, we're not knowing God. We're not experiencing the gospel. Jesus has nothing to speak to. He has, he, he, there's, no, there's, no, there's no issues being raised that cause us to lean more deeply into grace. I hope that makes sense. I just, it just really helps me to think of it that way, that the healthy community is not a community where everybody does everything right. A healthy Christian community is not one full of good examples. There's nothing more condemning than a good example. Nothing. Oftentimes, good examples make much of us. But bad examples that are being redeemed by the grace of God make much of Jesus. When righteousness comes from being found in Him, not by us being able to to meet a certain standard. Not that we're not conformed by the gospel through the grace of God and we're changed from faith to faith and glory to glory. We become more conformed to his image. But it's when you do that without the context of being honest about your continual revelation of your sin that you condemn people by it. We condemn, I condemn people by my good example. One of the, one of the struggles of being someone who does this for a living I mean, people tend to look at you like you've done something or you've got some ability or somehow you've, you've got a better handle on this than anybody else. And the answer is it's ridiculous. The longer I go in this, I realize how holy God is. I realize more about how other He is. I realize how, fall, how much I fall short of all that He is. Every year I do this, I am more aware of my sinfulness. I'm more aware of how much I need him and how much of how much of my best efforts don't help. Yet people would look at people like this and me and Jeff and others that do this for a living and be like, wow, you must have it all together. No, I don't. It is a huge, ironic, cosmic joke that I get to do this. In my church, I like to refer to myself as the lead repenter. You know, I'm leading you in faith and repentance. And if you're in a gospel-centered environment where you want to make much of Jesus and you want to make much of the cross and little of yourself, you'll find environments and ways to confess your sin to one another and to be honest about where you're falling short. That's what makes much of the righteousness of Christ when we realize that we have none of our own. We see this pattern, though, that God reconciles us to himself as individuals, but then he radically, as radical as that is, to be called to God, for God to open up our deaf ears and to awake our dead hearts and to, and to bring us up from the dead of our sin. As radical as that is, he draws us to himself as the biggest miracle. That is a huge miracle, but it is commensurate with another miracle of us being drawn radically to each other. 
See, sin not only separates us from God, but separates you and I from life together. It separates you and I from each other. And when God reconciles us to himself, he then begins the hard work of reconciling us to each other. There's a pattern. There's a pattern in this. And, And this is how God hopes that we would reflect the grace of God is our relationships with each other. Think about this. In, in John 17, when Jesus said, I am praying that they may be one together, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. I, he's praying that we would be one with each other to the extent that the Trinity is one with itself. That is a challenge to me. There are so many things. I want to run from people. I want to distance myself from people. I do not want to be honest. I do not want to be transparent. And if I do have the grace of God to be transparent, I still don't want to be vulnerable. But that's what God is... Jesus is praying that we would have the same openness and oneness and huge, complete self-disclosure that the Trinity has with Himself. I mean, that's what I read there. If you can convince me otherwise, please do. But that's what I'm seeing, that we're supposed to have the same relationships with each other that God has with himself. Freak. I mean, that is a challenge to us. Now let's look at how some of this plays out. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. Verse 17. Paul here is explaining that, that, that now, because of, the, because of the kingdom of God, that it doesn't just involve people that know God based on history and race and religion. But now God, through the gospel, is calling all men to himself, even those that knew nothing about God, didn't care about God, didn't know God. He is now saying that these Jews and these Gentiles are now being made one people. And look at how he describes this. This is a... This, these metaphors, as we walk through this passage, will be very helpful to see the progression of, of Christian community. Paul, talking about Jesus, said that he came and preached peace to you who are far off. That's you and I. That's the Gentiles. And peace to those who were near. That's those that had the oracles and the prophets of the Old Testament that, that knew his law. He says, for them, for through him, for through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Which, by the way, that is my favorite verse about the Trinity. As we're talking about Trinitarian things. For through Jesus, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Look at the, the natural progression here. You see that we are we're no longer strangers and aliens. We are fellow citizens. That means that these two these these two entities, these individuals that were so different, so opposed to each other. The Jews hated Gentiles, and Gentiles thought the Jews were self-righteous, and, and the Jews were, but they thought that the Gentiles were just hedonists, and so there was no fellowship between them. But because of the grace of God, they are now the citizens of the same kingdom, of the same country. 
But it keeps going deeper. It says, now that you're citizens, now you're saints and members of the household of God. So it goes deeper. Now we're family members, not just in the same country, like we have the same passport, but boy, now we have the same mom and dad. We're family together. We have the same father. Jesus is called the firstborn among many brethren. That means that we're brothers and sisters and that we call God our father. We're members of the same family. Think about that. Do you really consider your brothers and sisters in Christ a family? Or is it just people that you sit with in chairs and for a couple hours and then leave and then come back and do it next week? And the weight of the idea of Christian family doesn't really mean anything. But it keeps even getting bigger or deeper and more difficult. It says that in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see these two positional statements. He has made us citizens. He has made us members of the same household. But the third one isn't something that automatically happens. It's not like justification where through one moment, through Jesus dying on the cross, we were absolutely justified before God. It's a progress. It's something that happens over time. It's, and I would challenge us to say it's something that has to be pursued For us to be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, for Jesus by His Spirit to actually dwell among us, it's a process of being joined together. It's not just something that we are made positionally. It's something that we have to experience in reality, being joined together, our relationships becoming deep, intimate, not superficial, not disposable. Do we feel the weight of this on our lives? Do we feel the weight of this kind of union, this kind of joining together on us? If we would, if we would hope to, and I know you do, I know you want so much to be God's picture to a dying world. You want to be the, the incarnated presence of God in a world that is dying without Him. It says here that to be that, in order to be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, we have to be built together. (laughs) This isn't just being together. Oh, I wish it was like that. But it says being built together, joined together. It implies something that we have to go after and something that's going to be affecting every aspect of our life. Every aspect. Our call to be the church is something that, that is something that we live out every single day. So, here's the question. If we cannot know God apart from community, what is then the next step? I think we've seen so far that the revelation of God comes to us in the midst of others. But, but now, how do we become, how are we joined together? How does this happen? You know, that's, it's a good question to ask. We've just, been, we've just seen this. It's like, okay, how do we get built together? How do we join together? This is my second point. This is through us being changed deeply through community. A question that I've asked myself and always ask is this Does community lead us into the gospel 
Or does gospel lead us into community with one another? Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? As I wrestle with that, I see both. It's absolutely both. The first one I want to tackle is how community leads us to the gospel. Change, deep change. How does deep change happen to us? How are we transformed? How does the gospel actually make a difference in our lives? It doesn't come through the application of biblical principles. It doesn't come through seeing a good example like we've already talked about and doing our best to be that. Change happens the deeper and the more we lean into the grace of God. It's when we lean into the gospel, the gospel that saves us through no merit of our own, through no interest of our own, through no desire of our own, the gospel saves us. It's when we lean into that that we're changed. Now, how do we lean into that? How are we compelled to lean more into the cross? How does the cross become more meaningful and more meaningful to us? If that is the method of change, how do we become more dependent upon it? Paul, Romans 1.16 says, The gospel is the power of God. It's so interesting that we look for power in so many other places. We look for power in influence. We look for power in our good works. We look for influence through our keeping our act together. But Paul says the power of God is the gospel. The power for change. It's been said that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. We tend to think that we kind of get started with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but then we become more mature and we become more fruitful by some other means, through spiritual disciplines or through deeper teaching or something like that. But the reality is it's the power of God is always the gospel. It's the A disease. It's everything. And the way that we realize that it's everything is that we continue to realize our need for it. We are changed not by avoiding our sin, but by owning it. The more we, the more we push our sin down, the more we overlook our sin, the more we hide it, the more it dominates us, the more it affects us, the more we don't change. Here's the thing, we want to change deeply, we want to be holy, we want to be righteous, but none of that happens without being sinful first. None of that happens without being honest first. So, where this is real, this is where real life community comes in. If we don't have close relationships, we simply won't see how sinful we are. If we are alone, we're left with our own thoughts and our intentions. We don't realize how lost we are. We can lie to ourselves, we can deceive ourselves. In fact, I would guess is that if you did not get angry this week, if you do not get frustrated this week, you talk to nobody. If you didn't realize that you get frustrated and you lose your temper and that you, you think more of yourself than you do other people, if it wasn't absolutely apparent to you that in every relationship, in every, in every conflict, that you are looking out for yourself predominantly, then you really haven't talked to many people. This is my experience, that God is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble. How are we going to get humble? 
if it's not through our sin being exposed by other people. This is what happens to me. There's certain, certain aspects of my self-righteousness that get exposed when I'm with others. Maybe some of these might apply to you, but this, this is how it works for me. I, I've experienced not just self-righteousness, but healthy eating righteousness. One of the things that happens when we gather together in homes back in Richmond is that we have meals together. And so we get to see what people bring and what people eat. And I don't know if it's like this here, but I mean, we have to write position papers on how the gospel does not dictate a certain way to eat. (laughs) And people get so wrapped up and boy, I mean, like literally, I am right with God because I eat tofu. I mean, there there is a strong sense in which there is, you know, I mean, the shocker is that you can juice and that you can eat, you know, organic grain-fed beef and still go to hell. I mean, you can. (laughs) I mean, those things don't affect your righteousness. So it gets revealed to our hearts, man, how much stock we put in how well we eat when we see that other people don't have to. Or it happens to me like with entertainment righteousness. Wow, you watch that television show? You let your kids watch that movie? When I react like that, I didn't realize how much stock I'm putting in my high values. And really, my righteousness isn't being found in Christ. It's being found in how well I parent my kids. Parent righteousness. This is huge. Or kid righteousness. I mean, you feel like you're doing pretty good until you're around a family that you think really parents better than you. And then you're like, wow. Boy, we don't do that. Boy, my, my, my kids are not that well behaved or... Wow, um, boy, yeah, my kid's right on the wall with crayon. And, uh, you know, all these things start stirring up when you get next to each other's, when you, when you get into other people's lives and other people's families. I mean, and it goes the other way, too. It's like when you see someone that's not parenting as well, or you think is not parenting as well as you, you're like, Oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Gosh, I'm so sorry that, you know, your cell phone got flushed down the toilet because your kids just, you know, don't obey. I'm so sorry. And, and, the whole, and all the time inside you're going, man, I'm not like that. Wow. You get smug. You get self-righteous in so many different areas. How about political righteousness? Do you ever, do you ever find yourself like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you voted for... I mean, it's not until you have to be in church with someone who is of the different political party that you realize how much stock you put in your political convictions and your righteousness is found in your mind by having the right political persuasion. In Richmond, we're all over the place in terms of, our, in terms of all that stuff. And it comes up all the time. People have to repent to one another for arguing, for trying to push a political opinion or direction that the gospel really doesn't care about. Um, oh, theological righteousness. This is, this is me. Um, we were in a, in a, in a community gathering, and, and we were sharing something, and, you know, something came across the room that, you know, that's not quite right. You know, I... I, I you know, in my own head, I'm like, oh my gosh, if, if, if I don't correct this, the whole thing is going to go into heresy and people are going to get lost. And so I just literally just corrected this gentleman, t- 
twice my age in front of everybody else trying to influence him with my theological nuance and you know making sure that you know nothing was said that wasn't right well in the moment i told myself that i was just caring for this community i didn't want anyone to go off track but in reality i wanted everybody in that room to know and think that i was the man that i was i should be looked at to being the one in charge here i should be the one that has the you know that has the theological gold star I totally did it because I wanted people to respect me and I can talk about stuff and people can think I know something. I'm theologically self-righteous. In reality, when I thought about it, there was, I had no interest to care for those people. I was simply wanted to make much of myself. So our community reveals our need Because it reveals how much we're trusting in things over and above the gospel for our goodness. Now, we cannot appreciate the good news of the gospel without a robust understanding of our sinfulness. Calvin said this, and you know, I challenge this every single time I read it, but the more I dig into it, I find it to be so. That the prerequisite for knowing God is knowing yourself. The prerequisite for having a right knowledge of God is to have a right knowledge of yourself in relationship to Him. We have an inflated view of ourselves apart from other people. One of the things that causes me to lean into the gospel most, I, would, I think personally, is having to forgive and to be forgiven all the time. I mean, there are very few days that, that I don't end the day going, gosh, you know, I really need to... Rep- I, you know, I said that to this person. I meant to hurt them. I need to ask them to forgive me. I mean, relationships reveal your need for grace. You need to be forgiven. And you need to ask forgiveness. Every time I have to do that, I fall more and more in love with who Jesus has made me. And I reject more and more the temptation to be somebody that I'm not. It's the biggest thing that being a pastor, it's like you just, the temptation to pretend and to act like I have it all together is strong. Because I want people to respect me for how well I do and for what I do. And I think that I might lose influence with them if they really know that I'm a sinner. If they really know that I don't have it together and that all I do have is Jesus, what, what difference does that make? Between me and them, nothing. But the good news is that we don't lead by our example. We lead in the gospel. We like to call our leaders and our pastors gospel pace setters. We are not lording anything over you. We are setting a pace for you in the gospel. That means I'm repenting quicker and I'm putting my faith in Jesus more and more every day. And I want you to follow the gospel that way. Now, switch here. Sorry, the glare is getting me. The, um, I know the glare off my head is getting you too. So, the, uh, so we, see how, we see how the community leads us to the gospel. Now, how does gospel lead us into community? This is how I see it. That when we start being honest about who we are, it draws us closer to each other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 
One of my favorite guys on this wrote a book, Life Together. Many of you may have read it. If you're interested in diving into this idea of confessional community, this is a must-read. He said this. He said, He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. Many Christians, even with their corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship for them does not occur because they have fellowship with one another as devout people. The problem is that we do not have fellowship as undevout people. The sinners. Our problem is that this pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and the entire fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. This is a reality that we have to fight. If we feel alone, even in the midst of Christian community, it's probably because we're not being honest about how we fall short. Think about your community. Think about your close friends. Are you more likely to pretend or are you more likely to be honest in that setting? Do your best friends, does your Christian community, does it cause you to realize your sinfulness more and more or does it tempt you to be something that you're not? If it continues to tempt us to be something that we're not, we will continue to be lonely. We will continue to not enjoy real fellowship with one another. We will, in the midst of all these people, still be alone. And we will not change deeply. I'm convinced that so many people come into the body of Christ and the gathering of the church and they pick up on this self-righteous pretension And they leave because it's not real. People are going through motions. People are are not relating to one another the way that they relate to at Humpy's, which I went yesterday or the day before, and it was awesome. (laughs) Man, the crab legs here are so huge. I mean, mean, the ones in Richmond are like this big. I mean, it's just not not even comparison. So... But those people in that place, they're being, they can be real with one another because there's not pretension. And that's not true. People are more fake outside the church than they are in. But the reality is that they may find more realness there than they do here. And it should not be so. Jesus meets us at our point of weakness, folks, not our strengths. If we celebrate our strengths with, each, with one another, we will have a meeting, we will have, compa- we will have companions, but we will not have Jesus. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Unless we're humble, unless we cause each other to be more humble, unless we're humble in front of each other, we will not have spiritual friends, and we certainly will not have community. Think of all the one another's in Scripture. I mean, they're so vast. If you ever line them up, it just, it's so intimidating. We're to honor one another, Romans 12.10. We're to accept one another, Romans 15.7. We're to bear with one another, 
Colossians 3. We're to forgive one another, Ephesians 4. We're to pray for and confess sins to one another, James 5. We're to cheer and to challenge one another. We're supposed to admonish and confront one another. We're to warn one another. We are to instruct one another. You couldn't even scratch the surface of that unless you're living a lot of life together. Unless we are pushed together in real community, we couldn't even begin to do that. My last thought is this. We cannot win the world. We cannot make disciples apart from community. First Peter, if you'll turn with me here. First Peter 2. This is, this is another great text from which to mine a robust and God-honoring and sin-destroying and grace-magnifying sense and view of the church. First Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Isn't that just beautiful? That we are a people for his own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him. But verse 10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy, And this is evidenced by the fact that we are now no longer individuals, but we are now a people. No longer simply individuals, but we are now finding our meaning in being the people of God. There's a tension in this first phrase. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Okay, just work with me for just a second. Holy nation, royal priesthood. Holy nation, we are called out from the world by God's grace to be His, to live a life of holiness, of righteousness, of, of a life that reflects the perfection of God. We are meant, and God is by His grace making us more holy. We are a called out people, but we're also called a royal priesthood. Who are the priests? What image, is, what image is being evoked here? It is the idea of the Old Testament priest who would, would be in that place between God and people. Between sinful people that needed to reconcile and have their sins forgiven by sacrificing an animal. And the holy God that demanded blood and life being ended to atone for sin. The priest would not so much bring God to the people, but the priestly function is to bring people to God. To help people find who God is. This is what we tend to do as the church, though. We tend to get this holy nation thing right, but we don't tend to get the royal priesthood. This idea of the church is that we are meant to be intimately acquainted with those that do not know him. 
that do not know God. The function of our life together is so that we would be able to also, also become intimately acquainted with those that do not know God, those that have no knowledge of Him, to those that, that were just like us before God busted into our world and our souls collided with the cross. How are we doing? Does our life together, does it, does it only display us being a called out people? Or is our identity also in being intimately acquainted with those that don't know him yet? We use this phrase all the time, they're not yet believers. They're not the Gentiles. Yes, they're lost, but boy, if I'm honest, I'm lost a lot of times too. I come back to the gospel of grace every single day. I believe by God's grace. And those that don't are not yet believers. How are we doing in our priestly function with them? Here's, the, here's why this is important. This is why this is important for making disciples. People often belong before they believe. People oftentimes find themselves being attracted to the life together of the church before they are ultimately attracted to Jesus. There is a compelling apologetic in our lives as we live life on life in intimacy with one another for the gospel that is attractive. If we are being built together, if we are, by God's grace, being joined together to be a dwelling place of God by His Spirit, that is attractive to people that do not yet believe. So are we putting ourselves in a place where people can belong to us before they believe? This is, and what are they seeing in us? See, we often think of, of, of people coming into a conversation or into a relationship with one of us. And we explain to them the gospel and they come to faith and they are then brought into the Christian community. But... That's not the only way. In fact, I would say that Jesus has actually planned for it to be much more robust and multifaceted than that. I find this in John 17. We, we already read it. It says this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you and I Father, are, in, are one. So that, it says, so that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, talking about the disciples, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. It is the quality of our life together and the depth of our unity that will bring that will bring an accurate and attractive revelation of who God is to others. Our mission is best done through our life together. It is when people see our love for one another, they will know you are Christians by your love for one another. How much, are we, how much are we missing? How much are p- 
the people in your city, in my city, how much are they not seeing who God is because you and I do not live life together in unity? When Jesus is praying that we would be one so that the world might know who He is. It might be, it may be, that people are not coming to Christ the way we would wish and the way that we pray, not because we're not going out enough, but because we're not going in enough. Does that help you? I just, that helps me to know that, that my greatest relationships can be the very instrument, can be the very vehicle through which people come to know God. They're not simply for me. We are called out of the world together for the world. That's compelling. For me, that's something to give my life to. That is something that I will spend the rest of my life enjoying and striving for. There, I just want to think of one, one testimony in our church um, that will help bring this home for us and hopefully challenge us. Um, there was this young couple that were coming to our church for a while quickly apparent that she was a believer. She was enjoying the grace of the gospel. He was not. He was being drugged along. He was being brought along for the ride. Well, we, we, we discovered this and knew this, and we loved them and invited them into our community. Stuff came to a head, though, when she wanted to actually join the church. He's not a Christian. He's watching this transformation happen in his wife. And he's still struggling to believe and at sometimes adamant. Well, myself and, and, and the community leader that was leading the community that, that he was, that she and he were a part of, met together with them. And I was talking to her in front of him about what does it mean to become a part of the body of Christ? What does it mean to be part of the Redemption Hill community? What would it mean to, to follow God in stewardship and to give of your time and of your money and of your, of, of your resources to each other? And he got up to, to, to leave and go take a phone call for work or something. And I said, man, you need to listen to this because your wife is going to be giving away your stuff. She's going to want to go be the church, and you're not going to want her to be the church. You're going to be here wondering where she is. You need to hear this, and she needs to know that you're hearing this, and you need to be willing to let her join the church to be a part of the body of Christ if this is going to work. It's a very interesting conversation, very awkward, um, but we got through it. Well, it was two months later that we were baptizing him. And when he came up out of the water, he said, you know what? You never judged me. You never made me feel worse than you. It was my pride that was keeping me from my wife, from God. It was God's love through you that melted my heart. You had every reason to reject me. You had every reason to not include me, but you did. I'm so grateful. And it was just this... I could, it was a beautiful picture of someone belonging before they believed. May we continue to grow together in a way that makes the gospel attractive. Let me pray for us.
Oh, there's so many things that get revealed in moments like this. God, I know that if anyone in here is like me, that they're confronted with how difficult and how much we do not want to be this transparent. God, I ask that the grace of the gospel would show us our righteousness in you so that we would no longer have to pretend, we would no longer have to be self-righteous, that our sin, our identity being found in something besides you would no longer keep us from others. God, I ask that for the sake, not just of our relationship to you and with each other, but for the sake of the world, God, that we would be honest and confess our sins to each other and to encourage one another in the gospel by the grace of God so that this world may know who you are. God, forgive us for, for being and for, for not being the church and for obscuring who you are. God, I'm so grateful that we get to hear your word, that we get to enjoy redemption. And it's our joy in that that makes you make sense to others. God, help us pursue joy in you through the gospel for the sake of your glory and for the blessing of many. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, appreciate you bringing a message to us on being a community and for your transparent approach and humble approach, which really reflects and models that transparency that's found in community. Let's stand now for our final sort of word of dismissal. Um, tonight, again, 6 p.m., inviting you back for our Thanksgiving um, fellowship time, a time to experience community and relationships. Bring the food early and come at 6, and then we're also going to have communion time as well. Also, we have food on the back table. If you want to stay around, if you want to spend some time together, Feel free to do that. We like to transform this area into one large living room where we can experience experience each other um, and relate relate to each other in a meaningful way. So be be um, proactive to do that. Let's pray one more time. God, thank you for this time together. We pray that we would grow grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gospel, which not only saved us, but the gospel is working in our hearts to sanctify us as we will lean into it, as we grow in grace and as we grow to know Jesus, and he becomes more precious to us than ever before. Thank you for this flock, our flock, our body. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.